Welcome to the ITA Coaches Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle McNamara, the Director of Coach Education at the ITA, and I'm so excited to sit down with today's guest, Olga Harvey, the Chief Strategy and Impact Officer at the Women's Sports Foundation. Olga is a native of Moscow, Russia, and played college tennis at Cornell University, where she went undefeated in Ivy League play and was inducted into the Cornell Athletic Hall of Fame for her outstanding college tennis career. In our conversation, we discuss her path from Cornell to her current position, as well as dive deeper into the 50th anniversary of Title IX and what the next 50 years might look like for girls and women in sports. Olga is passionate about the transformational power of sports and play equity on and off the court, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Well, Olga, thank you so much for joining us on the Coaches Podcast today. We're thrilled to have you, and uh, yeah, can't wait to jump into our conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. Super excited. See if my wisdom is any helpful at all to this group. No, I'm sure it will be. So I wanted to maybe just start off at, at the beginning. Um, you spent a lifetime really in tennis in different capacities. You were a really competitive junior player and ultimately played college tennis as well. Can you kind of start us off at the beginning and just tell us how you got involved in tennis and your pathway to college and what that experience was like? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, not sure if audience knows, I um, was born and raised in um, Moscow and Russia and played every single sport growing up. Was fortunate that, that my parents were avid athletes. My father is a volleyball player. My mom played a little bit of tennis, but really they just took me skiing and skating. And I actually didn't like tennis at first. In fact, I wanted to quit because I had to walk 40 minutes with my grandma and she was slow. But eventually when I was able to walk to practice myself and got a little bit better, I fell in love with the game and ultimately uh, kind of dropped the rest of the sports, not right away, but eventually tennis became my thing and really has been the passion of mine and uh, guides me kind of through my life to this day recent injury notwithstanding while playing competitive tennis in, in the USTA mixed doubles league. So going back to Russia, I was fortunate as well to be part of the competitive training program where tennis was free at the time. Shockingly, you know, that has changed over the years and it's just as difficult to make it within the Russian system as it is in the US if you don't have the funds. But I kind of grew up through this just as long as you're good and you're try hard. I was getting all that, you know, tennis uh, funding and court time for free and really didn't know where I was going with this. But eventually I felt like education was way more important. I did not switch to a sports school, which is what was the path for most athletes, not just in tennis, but in all sports in Russia. And I stuck with, with the education and kind of tennis fell on the back burner. Um, and then I started Moscow State University. Again, played just, you know, tennis a little bit for fun, but pretty much thought this was it for any, any competitive path. And eventually wanted to study abroad. I was an economics major and applied to a bunch of schools and got into Cornell University completely unrelated to tennis and um, showed up as a transfer student with uh, a suitcase, but brought my racket with me. And that sort of started the 
the fun adventure of walking on to the Tonestima Cornell, probably for another story, but almost didn't even get a tryout because whether it was my accent or just the fact that I was fully unprepared to what I was coming to, but fast forward to post tryout, made the team and really loved um, every minute of my tennis journey at Cornell as a D1 athlete. Well, that's impressive. I mean, as a walk-on, you're very humble. You must be one of the most successful walk-ons in college tennis history. <laughs> you went on to play number one singles at Cornell all three of those years, if I'm not mistaken. And you were a three-time All-Ivy first team player and inducted into Cornell's Athletic Hall of Fame. So pretty remarkable, to say the least. Thank you. And, you know, we are on the Coaches Podcast. I give so much credit to my um, collegiate coach, Linda Myers, who is a dear friend to this day. She was able, she wasn't the greatest tennis player, but she was a great coach, a great motivator who brought out the best in me. In -hmm. fact, the game that I didn't even know I had. So, oh, so much to her, to my teammates. And obviously, you know, the um, the skill must have been there from uh, the foundation of of growing up in um, and training in my home country. So um, thank you for that. But I um, really loved every single minute and never regretted that I decided to try, you know, to try out for the team. Yeah, that's amazing. So you graduate from Cornell and what's next for you? What are the next steps for you in your career? Yeah, so many of uh, the women I played against decided to try to play some uh, challenger tournaments, but um, I didn't have any money to my name and uh, wanted to go to to work right away and um, really had an amazing education and lots of opportunities to apply to different companies and um, found one that resonated with me with, with my education, Damon Worldwide, which was at the time a very small company, although global in nature and it's in the consumer package goods. And I just kind of, you know, gave it a go that ended up being almost a 20 year long career with roles in all various areas, including business management and global sourcing, and just really a fabulous career opportunity with sports and tennis being a backdrop for my success. To this day, I believe, you know, both from Um, the standpoint of, you know, all the life skills we get from sports, tennis in particular, you know, your confidence, your problem solving. We we all know what what sports bring, but uh, tennis in particular, and the fact that I was, you know, from Russia, and it's just kind of brought this sort of, I guess, interest and opened so many doors for me where people were just, you know, excited to kind of, you know, offer those advancement opportunities. And it's it's really, you know, at the time I wasn't in, in the profession I'm in now, I kind of didn't think of it, but I look back at some of the photos from like 15 years ago when I was promoted to an officer of, of the company. And here I am, the only woman in the sea of, you know, a man in, in suits. And it was not a very diverse environment, but again, I, you know, credit my uh, my sports journey and being a D1 athlete as um, as one of those reasons that I was able to do well. And it was a great ride. And through it all, 
Um, I continued involved with the sport. I actually joined USTA a couple of years after graduation and played leagues and tournaments and tennis continued being sort of that, you know, constant in my life that, uh, that shaped it and brought so many friends. And to this day, my, some of my college teammates are my best friends. Yeah, no, that's so true. And so now currently you are the chief strategy and impact officer for the Women's Sports Foundation. For those people that aren't as familiar with the Women's Sports Foundation, can you tell us a little bit about the history of the foundation and what the goals and objectives of it are? Yeah, of course. It's almost like a dream come true job. <laughs> and something that, you know, you sort of, you hope you discover, you know, at uh, at the right time. And for me, it was, you know, that that moment when I have given a lot to the business world and um, I volunteered through USTA and, and really discovered the, uh, the world of philanthropy, of nonprofit leadership. Um, not an easy switch, no matter what skills you have, you kind of have to start, you know, from the very beginning. So actually, um, my first entry into the nonprofit was through New York Junior Tennis and Learning, which is the largest nonprofit in the NJTL system, which maybe the listeners are familiar with. Arthur Ashe was one of the founders of uh, NJTL, I guess, system and, and community. And NYJTL is the largest one of them um, located in New York City and serves youth uh, from underserved communities through tennis and education. So that was my first entry. And then through that work, I met Billie Jean King, who is the founder of the Women's Sports Foundation, eventually five years ago, made the move to, to join WSF. We were founded by Billie Jean King right after Title IX was passed in 1974 with advancing gender equity in sports to you know, protecting and preserving this new legislature that was still kind of flagelling to um, really open up doors for girls and women to play and to reach their potential in sport and in life. And the mission resonates so deeply with me because I'm one of those women who, you know, sports opened up so many doors for me. And I just won that for every single girl, honestly, for every single person, boys and girls, everyone should be able to feel the joy of sport, both physically, emotionally, and realize their potential, whatever it may be, right? Whatever job, whatever work you're destined to engage in, sport gives you that boost to allow you to be your best self. And so we have uh, been doing this work for almost 50 years now, and uh, the mission hasn't changed. Some of the challenges evolved, although on the greater scale, the, this notion of you know equity is as relevant now as it was in the 70s. Um, so I'm excited to uh, do this work and kind of, you know, view this as this, you know, sort of second career gift for me that uh, makes me excited to wake up and, and uh, put much longer hours than I have um, in the business world. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure it's not easy work, but so, so important. And so you mentioned Title IX, and this is an important year, a special year for Title IX, marking the 50th anniversary of uh, the passage of it. And so um, I wonder, you know, in your, in your seat, in your role at the Women's Sports Foundation, what are your thoughts 
on how we can educate and empower, you know, the next generation of advocates? Yeah, it's uh, it's a very big question and an important one. And interestingly enough, right, uh, the 50th anniversary of Title IX just passed on June 23rd, and not many young people, if you stop them on the street or even, you know, collegiate student athletes and say, you know, what's Title IX? Not many people know it's good and bad. On one hand, if one day we have full equity and you don't need to have the legislature that's going to sort of govern it, I guess we've done our job and you sort of don't, don't need to know. At the same time, Billie Jean King always said you need to know your history in order to be able to impact the future. And knowing what these 37 words that effectively changed everything for girls and women um, are and what the spirit of Title IX is and why it's not a bad thing and it's not a negative and um, it's not giving to the girls at the expense of boys. It's really uh, means equity for everyone and um, the pie can, can get bigger. It's not, you know, a zero sum game that if you, you know, um, invest in, in women's sports, you, you have to take, it's not always, you know, taught well, um, and it, it really is important. And we have done a lot of work um, this year uh, at the foundation to um, really educate um, and inspire and um, really create this next generation of advocates, um, men, women, young and old that are gonna all engage in this work of saying, you know, it's not about sort of, you know, suing someone, of course, you know, if, if you, mm -hmm. you have to, sometimes that's the only resort, but if um, a really simple rule to say what you have, um, you're willing to, you know, trade for what someone else has, that's roughly equity. So um, if the uniforms are similar and you could say, yeah, these are good, they're not identical, but I'll take that, you know, I'll swap with you, you know, Jersey swap. We're good, you know, if the facility where, you know, we train, you know, we can, I'll go this day, you know, lift weights here and you use mine, different, you know, equipment, but generally you, you feel good about the workout you got. That's, that's pretty good, right? Mm -hmm. But if you will never trade what you have, the litmus test is you, you probably don't have that equity. And of course it goes beyond facility and equipment and meals. Um, it has to do with college scholarships. It has to do with, um, of course, you know, participation opportunities. Uh, and then if um, there's areas that are not um, governed by federal funding, but there's disparity in all of those. And so while maybe it's not a Title, title IX violation, but it's an inequity, we, uh, we try to, you know, I guess, change and, and resolve as well, but but sort of sticking with with Title IX, uh, what I will say for for coaches who are listening to this podcast, there's definitely been, you know, a lot of sort of misconceptions about the law and especially with some of the so-called non-revenue producing men's sports, which I hate that term, you know, uh, collegiate sports were never meant to be revenue producing. I mean, college sports, the spirit of it has meant to be, you know, an amazing opportunity for young people who are getting education to play sports. Again, men and women, all diversity of sports, they're all important. They're also meant to be a pipeline for Olympic and Paralympic competition. 
And again, that's all sports on the, the greatest of stages, right? That's the, the spirit of, you know, collegiate uh, education and athleticism. And over the years, um, TV contracts and revenue sort of got in the mix. And of course, now we've sort of, you know, labeled some sports more important to the university than others. And um, the non-revenue producing sports, so-called, you know, sometimes get cut to sort of be in compliance with Title IX. And that's really not the spirit of the law. There's, um, if you think about the, uh, the budgets that are being saved to, you know, cut a smaller sport, it's, it's so insignificant compared to sort of the larger, you know, um, say mil multi-million dollar salaries, you know, in, in some of the, uh, you know, biggest sports that um, monetize through TV contracts. So system is out of balance, but again, going back to sort of the spirit of it all is that, yeah, if 50% of women, if 50% of collegiate attendees are women, then there should be roughly enough, you know, equal amount of participation opportunities for women and men to do collegiate athletics. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, there, there's a lot of ways to have some flexibility, but ultimately, you know, so many people on, on this podcast probably have daughters and sons. Don't you want sort of, you know, the, the same joy for both of them to to experience the, um, the power of playing, competing first, it starts at the grassroots levels. If you're mm -hmm. good enough, you know, you, uh, you're gonna compete in high school. And if you're even better, you, um, you have an opportunity to do it in college. And, and really, you know, we, I always talk about sort of that spirit of Title IX is what I'm fighting for. And what I want everyone to take away from this conversation is that, you know, forget the legal battles. We just gotta do right by our young people to position them well to, um, you know, leave college um, enriched in all ways. And when you play sports, your brain works so much better. Yeah, that's so true. You mentioned 37 words, just as a side note um, for anyone listening to this, I don't know if you've seen it, but the ESPN series called 37 words, I recently watched and it was really, really fantastic. I mean, I felt like I, was pretty educated on Title IX even before I watched it, but even I walked away feeling just like, wow, there's so much still to learn. I mean, we've we've come so far since the passage of this, but yet there's so much, still so much work left to do. Um, so anyways, but uh, in the 50 years since the, the passage of Title IX, uh, female sport participation is at an all-time high. Uh, I think the percentage of women coaching women though, at the collegiate level has declined from 90 plus percent in 1974 to a near all-time low today of roughly 40 percent and that's across all sports so um, in response to this i know the tucker center for research on girls and women in sport they created this report card on women in college coaching which i know you're very familiar with but some of our listeners might not know about that so um and this is a report card for percentage of women division one head coaches. And in tennis, in the most recent report, which was for the 2020-21 academic year, um, the report showed that tennis was at 39.5% of head coaches for division one were women, 
which on their grading scale, which is A through F is actually a D. So it's up though, I will say from the previous year, which I think tennis was came in at 37.6%. So with all of that, I just wonder A, kind of what are, what, what are your reactions to all of that? And B, where do you think we go from here? Like what are some ways that we might be able to increase that number of women coaches in college tennis? Yeah. First of all, I have to commend you for, you know, knowing a lot of the stats again that, you know, uh, some people don't even, you know, know and are so shocked when, um, when we bring up some of them. So, you know, thank you for, um, for reading it off. And, and um, it is a, a very interesting and at first not a very intuitive trend, but certainly um, the reality that has transpired over 50 years. And I'm going to uh, take us, you know, back to that sort of, you know, early 70s. Mm -hmm. um, women didn't play many sports, but predominantly women were being coaching, coached by women and men were being coached by men. And um, of course, you know, Title IX did a job in terms of uh, participation opportunities. We can talk about some of the uh, populations of uh, women the law has left behind. So it didn't do its job equally, but generally speaking, 3 million more girls are playing high school sports today and thousands of girls and women play collegiate sports. So the participation is, is much greater um, as more teams have been formed. Um, the jobs became more desirable and a lot of assistant coaches from the men's teams jumped over and applied and got those jobs. Why did they get those jobs? We can, you know, speculate on all the reasons were people in uh, decision-making positions men? Was it because they were more qualified at the time because they um, had great experience? Probably a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what sort of created this kind of, you know, sort of reverse effect. And we are where we are where men are still being coached by men and women are being largely coached um, by men. And, and in fact, in some sports, women uh, go through their entire athletic journey not having had a woman coach. Mm -hmm. Is it good or bad? I'm, there's some phenomenal um, coaches, men and women, so some love it. And in fact, don't know anything better and they want male coaches. And so um, it sort of created this um, really interesting sort of effect where now girls are growing up, they only see men, so they don't think of coaching as a career for them. Mm -hmm. So you have to sort of undo the 50 years of change where you now need to, A, convince girls and women that they should consider coaching as a profession. You should find ways to um, create the opportunities and then obviously um, encourage and promote and be patient if someone is not successful on day one. So it's a, it's a tall order, but um, ultimately the research shows that, you know, there, there, there are some nuances in coaching women and at times women can be um, more effective. So it's a good thing to get more women in coaching, but ultimately it's just a good thing. There shouldn't be a gender bias similarly to, you know, 
men could be super successful in coaching women. Women could be super successful in coaching men. And um, uh, I was just watching the second game of uh, WNBA finals uh, last night and Becky Hammond is crushing it now as probably in her first year, she's, you know, one, one game away from winning the whole thing. And I've seen a lot of uh, Twitter headlines saying like, you know, NBA has, you know, really missed the mark. Like here's an amazing coach that's just never got the opportunity to get that top job, potentially because of her gender. She certainly has applied and tried. And so um, the, there's biases that exist, but ultimately I want to talk about solutions and it's not so easy. And um, really the, the key for me is creating that pipeline and getting opportunities for women at that assistant coaching level so that they have the, the skills to then um, really compete truly and be on par for that top job. And um, that's, that's not always there. And um, actually just, uh, you know, a, a slight commercial for the Women's Sports Foundation work, but we have um, four years ago started a fund called Tara Vanderveer Fund for the Advancement of Women Coaches named after legendary Stanford basketball coach Tara Vanderveer um, uh, after her uh, 1,000 win. And now we have just announced the fourth class of these um, women coaches who are basically mentor coaches. So we offer funding to universities to bring in an assistant coach, maybe where you wouldn't necessarily be able to have an extra coach. Um, maybe it's a second assistant, right? You only have, but to hire women uh, to train um, in all sports at all levels. Um, it's not just for D1, it's, uh, you know, every collegiate level and really to, um, maybe take on a job where, you know, if you were asked to be a volunteer coach, you just can't afford to um, do a year and you pass up and start another career. So that's our small part in um, both rebuilding this pipeline, but also more importantly, um, everything we do, you know, we're, we're not going to solve it for, you know, the entire community, but it sets the example um, of what is possible. So if from the cohort of these coaches, uh, this women, women are now able to transition into head coaching jobs, we sort of demonstrate that um, this, you know, this model is working and will encourage um, others to follow and obviously, you know, continue raising money to be able to um, do this. So in my mind, it's a combination of factors and sorry, it's not a simple, you know, solution or a quick answer, but it's, it's going to take us um, to undo what has happened over 50 years, probably, you know, hopefully not, not quite 50 years, but certainly not um, a, you know, one, two year solve. It's, it's really changing the entire system and ultimately changing the minds and hearts of these young girls to know that, hey, um, I want to be a coach. I see Becky Hammond. I see, you know, Tara Vanderveer. I see, uh, you know, Renee Stubbs. Uh, really, you know, excited. And and you know, look. I mean, we all know what happened when uh, Andy Murray hired Emily Moresmo. Like, what's a big deal? But yeah. it just created such a, you know, chaotic sort of you know media storm around 
her and uh, and it should just be normalized. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Why not? She she's the best person for him and and uh, at that time. Yeah, yeah. No, well said. So for all of our college coaches listening to this, who might feel inspired or motivated to go and 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 do something, get involved uh, to make a difference. Uh, moving forward, are there suggestions or resources that you're aware of, like things that you would say, like actionable things that they could go do after this? Yeah, well, certainly I would say um, know your Title IX, you know, educate yourself and be prepared to educate your uh, your students, uh, those who you coach, um, and really uh, hopefully create that ripple effect of advocacy um, because we are definitely not done yet and that's the name of our uh, research uh, that uh, we've just come out um, after the 50th anniversary strides have been made but there's so much more work to do and it's everyone's job um, whether you're a coach or not where you're affiliated with uh, with the collegiate uh, world or not to uh, to know um, and then to act and then to lead right upon that knowledge is, is really super important. Um, the second thing is, you know, from a sort of personal guidance standpoint, if anyone is interested in applying for uh, TAR Vendor VR Fund, we'll have a new cohort, obviously for next uh, year, but applications open um, in Q1. Again, you know, so if anyone is interested, I encourage, you know, we want more tennis participating in, in this program. Um, and then, honestly, for me, it's it's really just, you know, everyone, you know, can make a difference and and change someone else's life. And I think we all know that. Again, if we're talking about coaches, women coaches, you know, we we just need. Sometimes it's just as simple as asking someone and saying, like, "Have you tried this?" You know, like, "Come," you know, really bringing people along on that journey. Far too often. We don't, you know, ask people to to give it a shot. And um, I'll, I'll leave everyone with sort of this kind of interesting thought too is, you know, and this is sort of research has been done, although I am generalizing, but usually um, women are a little bit more cautious to kind of raise their hand if they don't check every single box, right? Uh, so just, being asked to, you know, and being given that extra confidence is super important. Um, and then the last thing is I actually would love for everyone to check out a resource we have um, uh, called We Play Interactive, which um, is meant for code coaches and uh, program leaders um, that are touching on youth a little bit more so than, than collegiate athletes, but really is a, a great resource uh, for um, knowing how to work with um, with young people, with young women, but it also gives you insights and the differences and, um, you know, how to work with young men. But um, there's so many things today that are troublesome and certainly mental health is a big piece of it. And um, there's just some really great um, tips on um, working with youth and, and really making uh, uh, their health and wellness a priority. and um, knowing how to, you know, work and bring the best in everyone is, is something that I encourage folks to, um, you know, consider. But otherwise, you know, if anything that I have said um, resonates, you know, reach out to us. Um, 
you know, we'd love to uh, answer any questions, support if there's concern, certainly um, happy to help. And uh, um, our goal is, you know, equity and advance, advancement of opportunity for, uh, for young people. So we're, um, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, no, that's amazing. I, I, we'll make sure that our coaches check out that uh, your website, the Women's Sport Foundation. I know you have so many great initiatives, um, programs. I, I mean, I'm familiar personally with the Go Girl Go program. That's something that I actually implemented at my daughter's school a couple of years to try to really, you know, get girls active and increase confidence. And these are things that college coaches could implement in their own communities or schools as well. And, and many other initiatives, which are absolutely worth, um, you know, reading about and looking into. So thank you so much, Olga, for sharing all of this. It's been really an amazing conversation. I appreciate your time and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, hope to see you in person soon.